Severin Films Black Friday sale runs through this weekend at www.severin-films.com. Seven special exclusive Blu-rays, The Color Out of Space book on tape, read by Richard Stanley, new merch including Santa, Jess Franco, Tree Topper, that's all you need to know, and 50% off most of the catalog titles. Wow. Uh, the sale exclusive new releases are the first authorized Blu-ray release of the Theater Bazaar uh, two-disc set and digipack with slipcover, includes soundtrack CD, feature-length making of documentary, featuring directors Doug Buck, Karim Hussein, David Gregory's Buddy Giovanazzo, Jeremy Caston, Tom Savini, Richard Stanley, stars Udo Kier and Catriona McCall from the beyond. Don't forget, hours of bonus features. Uh, and Tales of the Uncanny. I'm very excited to see this one. The new award-winning documentary feature on anthology horror, uh, wherein over 60 horror professionals discuss their favorite films and segments. Bonus features include the rare anthology feature films, 1919's Eerie Tales, 1949's Unusual Tales, and on exclusive bonus disc, 1965's Master of Horror. Uh, and the first Blu-ray release of Buddy Giovanni's hard-hitting follow-up to Combat Shock, No Way Home, starring Tim Roth, James Russo, and Deborah Karen Unger. Uh, limited special edition includes soundtrack CD. And the first Blu-ray release of Jeremy Caston's The Attic Expeditions, starring Seth Green, Jeffrey Coombs, Ted Raimi, and Alice Cooper. Limited special edition includes soundtrack CD. And from the makers of Mark the Devil, the U.S. Blu-ray debut of Castle of the Creeping Flesh. Also, Doug Buck's Family Portraits and David Gregory's Plague Town, all available this weekend at Severin Black Friday sale at www.severin-film.com. This week's episode is sponsored by RLJ Films. From writer and director of The Strangers, Brian Bortino unleashes his twisted and unsettling return to the form with Dark and the Wicked. Certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, Bloody Disgusting is calling it visceral, chilling, and nihilistic. Now playing in select theaters on demand and digital DVD. Go see The Dark and the Wicked today. Head to thedarkandthewicked.com to find a theater near you. I really liked that one. It was a great yeah, movie. Yeah, it's it's yeah. pretty pretty bleak. Unfortunately, I saw it at a drive-in. Oh, it was I, I saw a screener at home and it was quite nice. I actually really liked that one. Um, but Elric, do you know what would make the perfect Christmas gift? Um, something dark and in print. I'm gonna go with dark and imprint, and that would be a subscription to Fangoria magazine. As a kid, we probably both uh, kind of delved into our dark horror love through Fangoria. I did all the way from New Zealand when it used to show up in the comic book store. So this now it's even more of a collector's item than ever. Definitely. And plus, it's the gift that keeps giving um, because you get four issues a year. You get an issue quarterly and it like way beats the hell out of like a jelly of the month club or anything like that. So... Our Colors of the Dark listeners can get 30% off of the cover price with the discount code COLORS30. That is right. From now until December 3rd, you can go to Fangoria.com, sign up for a subscription, enter code COLORS30, and get 30% off your subscription. Um, so give it as a gift. Give it to yourself. It is a fantastic present. And all new subscribers will get to listen to this podcast. This one for free. 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 Every week. Every other week. (laughs) That's a Fangoria. (laughs) Welcome to Fangoria's Color of the Dark podcast. I am one of your hosts, Elric Kane, and joining me is the very well Rebecca McKendry, PhD. 
I'm a, I'm a little under the weather. Not COVID, though. That, that is good. This is good. I have the test to prove it. It's just cold. She was blood raging before we got on. About, I totally uh, was. Uh, but I, we, I was blood raging. Well, it's Thanksgiving, so we got to be blood raging. We are, we're all blood raging yeah. tonight. Um, but but we're very happy. It is a Thanksgiving miracle that you did not get COVID. So that is I'm good news. pretty excited myself. I mean, I still feel like shit, um, and it doesn't make the fever go away. But I will take not COVID any day of the week right now. Yes. Um, but that said, because I have been under the weather, I have read a ton of stuff. Um, so we're going to class up this episode with some Wait. books. Wait. No, okay. I, okay. Later, later. I mean, we got a lot of movies to cover too, but I, I read two books this week. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. You have a lot more free time than I do this week, clearly. Just, I canceled meetings because I was feeling so shitty. So. I couldn't even get through an email this week. That's how <laughs> little I'm reading. But um, but yeah, no, so we are kind of missing Thanksgiving. This episode is kind of, it's the day before Thanksgiving recording, but it's we're kind of skipping it in a sense because we're hitting you on Black Friday. Um, the only thing that's Thanksgiving related this year, I decided to not watch Blood Rage out of protest that this is a bullshit Thanksgiving um, and that we're all going to be kind of technically skipping any official Thanksgiving this year. So I, are you so still I, making a Turkey? Uh, there'll be tricky pieces. I don't know. We got a Turkey product of some type. It might yeah. be lunch. I don't know. We're just no. juicing it all. It's just one big juice. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a chicken and I'm going oh, to okay. roast a chicken. Wow. That's chicken's good. I've never roasted a chicken before in my life. This is, this is me being totally domestic for like the first time ever. I am also making a pumpkin pie. Well, that's good. Pumpkin pie is the best. Um, but yes, this this Thanksgiving doesn't warrant such gems uh, as that. But that said, I did rewatch Not Thinking About Thanksgiving, and now I'm going to... This is just an old one I'm going to quickly put up front. Uh, you're next. I hadn't really watched it since theaters, but this really is the ultimate Thanksgiving film now, even though it's set... It's like basically meant to be about an anniversary, but really this... The, the fact that you have an entire family who really don't get along and all their partners and all their boyfriends uh, coming around a dinner table and then <coughs> being systematically uh, slaughtered, um, it's really, to me, the ultimate for a Thanksgiving. I highly recommend to get you into the family spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. No one's giving thanks for much. But also, I think it's one of the best final girls we will ever see in terms of the evolution of what that means because it's playing on it and it's giving it a different level. and. I think it is Thanksgiving because we've got a character who will be thankful for her shitty childhood where she's raised on a commune that she has some real hangups about, but it is what saves her life and makes her. I do love that pipe that's built in there where it's only, and she's raised on a commune. Oh no, it's so good. Like that could be bad in a movie. And I remember you might've rubbed up against the first time. I did. The first time I saw it, I was like, I was into it until the explainer, but now I still love that movie. I still love that movie. I think that's some of the best part because it just clicks it. it, Cause you know, we've seen the typical uh, final girl formula so many times that if mm. I saw somebody with the skill set, I would think what I'm watching is total horseshit. But in the in this context, it becomes so much fun because you get to cheer for her, and uh, you know you just and also you're as baffled initially as her boyfriend who had no clue that she had these skills, uh, AJ Bowen. It's it's pretty funny. So this is a really fun one if you're looking for one that could be this or Christmas. You could move it around. Uh, what was the name of the one from Netflix a couple of years ago about the girl who is stuck on a college campus over Christmas? Christy, Christy which is I Thanksgiving. Was, no, thank you. Yeah. That 
that one is Thanksgiving. That was yeah. a good Thanksgiving watch. So I know a lot of sites have kind of gone deep on Thanksgiving uh, films, so we didn't think we were going to. We've got none a beats a Blood later. Rage. Blood no. Rage really is. If you're looking for the ultimate Thanksgiving, just go there. It's not cranberry it's sauce. Not the cranberry. Yeah, no that that is one of the best, and definitely save it. But we kind of we're still in this mode of trying to catch up all the new movies before the year runs out. And I, I feel oh, yeah. like I'm kind of sprinting along on that. So let's kick off with a new one. Yeah. So this week we checked out Come Play, um, which had done like a limited theatrical. Like this one actually did a theatrical push and then um, really quickly rent to VOD. I will warn you, this one is still 20 bucks on VOD. I'm not sure if I would pay the $20. I might wait a couple of days to rent um, until it dips down a bit. But Elric and I kind of had different opinions on this one, I think. Well, when you make podcast money, it doesn't really matter. It, it's, raining. <laughs> it's basically raining. 20 bucks. What's 20 bucks? That's like a minute of my podcasting time. It's like, boom, throwing money all over the place. Um, somebody probably thinks I'm serious, so I should probably you know, put it you know, somebody, somebody made a joke about it a couple of days ago, and I was like, I could probably fill up my car with gas once <laughs> maybe depending on the gas rates so which is which is not a, we're not begging so don't get us wrong uh, no, this one's this one was you know seemed to get be getting pretty well reviewed the it's uh, based on a short film by the same director obviously about uh kind of it's like this kid's story that pops up on your device in this case mm-hmm. your the kid's phone and it's like an old school storybook and it's kind of interesting it's about this like weird elongated long arms weird bodied uh named, creature named larry is it Larry? Yeah, let, yeah name his Larry, name's Larry, who's very lonely and wants a friend. So he's obviously it, he pops up only for very lonely kids, um, and to kind of try to enter our world through the screen. That's that's its goal. Uh, we get a little bit of that start, but it, it doesn't. It definitely has a little bit of a feeling of something that was a short that's been adapted because at times it feels a little in the story level, a little disjointed, sequence to sequence. I think. Now, I was very frustrated by this movie, whereas you kind of approached it as it's not brilliant, but it's got some fun scares. I did not like this movie at all. I, for me, this was like a straight off Babadook rip off and not doing anything better with it. Like I didn't mind if somebody's making another story that's very similar to it. But for me, it just didn't do as much. Um, and it is it is the same setup. It's a single mom raising an autistic boy by herself. Dad is still in the picture somewhat, but not much. It's definitely mom by herself. You see single mom. I see a dad trying. I see (laughs) a dad right by her. He's around in a couple scenes. And when he's there, he's really nice and spoils the kid. That must be Yeah, but he's not responsible. So that was like a big thing. He's um, got a job. He's in a phone booth. Can we make this the Kramer versus Kramer podcast? I'm hearing it. But yeah, so it's it's the exact same setup of single mom with autistic kids struggling. He discovers the monster through a storybook. It's the exact same kind of childhood fairy tale. The monster starts infiltrating both of their lives. And when it really lost me, it has the almost exact same line on the emotional climax. In both movies, the emotional climax of the movie is where the mom screams, why can't you just be normal? Or some variation of, can't you just be normal? Um, and as soon as I heard that line, I mean, like I was eye roll. Um, because well, of- yeah, we should mention that the boy has autism and that's that's a like they is used a bit too much like a plot device in a way that it didn't feel very consistent in terms of the way the kid plays it and stuff. I mean, he again, also we're not didn't an expert, seem, but. I mean, yeah, I'm not an expert on autism by any stretch, but his only problem was he did not speak. Um, he was otherwise a very sweet, very normal, very reactive boy. And so, um, yeah, it seemed very much like a plot device 
with the yeah. not speaking and using the device, and that's how the monster gets to him. And I'm not um, sure exactly how the monster, the rules of the monster aren't always clear, like how he can get there. Sometimes it seems to be just through electricity, but other sometimes you, you see the streetlights going out. And there's some really cool build-up moments, but I don't know if I was completely clear on yeah, how it works. So I, I made a note of that, is I'm very confused by the monster thread line and how the lighting works in, because at times he seemed like he couldn't come into the light, but then other times he was draining the light. And then there's this scene where the boy shines a light up to him and it looks like light at like electricity is actually flowing through his veins. Um, And so I was kind of like, wait, is he allergic to the light? Is it like a lights out thing? Or is it like a, he needs the electricity, but then at the end they kind of like defeat him with light. And I was, I don't know exactly. Or do they defeat him? Yeah, we don't know. We can't tell you. But there's some good actors in it. Jillian Jacobs, John Gallagher Jr. You've seen in Hush and uh, Tim Cloverfield. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe them as a family unit, which was one of my kind of one of the things that held me out of it a little bit. But I do think, so, interestingly enough, I bet you that people who didn't really like Babadook might like this kind of version of that it's story. It's a very more. commercial Babadook. Exactly. Whereas people who are more interested in the art house side of it um, and the kind of indie side might prefer Babadook. So I'll be curious to hear what people think. But Yeah, it's actually gotten good review. Like I was reading Letterboxd. It has high ratings. Um, and as much as I was on there going like I was kind of burned by it just because it did seem like a more commercial version. Just of mad because you paid 20 bucks. I think that was it. Um, but yeah, it is a definitely more kind of vanilla mainstream version of the Babadook. But that said, there were people on there saying, I like this so much more than the Babadook. So what the fuck do I know is what I I'm saying. I want to see uh, it on the poster just saying, come play a vanilla Babadook, Rebecca McKenzie. <laughs> the vanilla Babadook. Vanilla Babadook. That's a pretty good. I'd take that if I was a film. Um, not bad. Uh, but no, anyway. It's Babadook made to play in a mall near you. And that's, yeah, it just feels like it was really kind of made as this big commercial thing. Yeah, it's a weird. This has been a weird pandemic. Like the last movie we saw together was Invisible Man, so that was like like the was last it? big movie. I feel like we went to something after no, that. Was, it was the last thing we saw. I remember pretty well. It was like the day before the, this all kind of got shut down. Because most most people wow. didn't see Invisible Man in the theater. Most people had to wait. Because remember they did that window release a couple. Of oh, you're later. right. And you and I saw it that very first weekend. Yeah. We saw it on like opening night, and then we all got shut down. But it makes you wonder which of these movies would have been like you know antebellum and this and some of the other things you, while you're watching them at home you're like this feels a lot smaller because of how i'm watching it but you wonder mm-hmm. would this have been a big release or would this have been a small like i can't i'm starting to lose the ability to tell i can't either you know like i i look at something like um brian bertino's the dark and the wicked which i absolutely loved viewing it on my home computer i watched that on a tv it was a screening link but i popped it through the tv um and it was fantastic with me by myself sitting in a dark living room but that's one that i say if i saw it at a theater would it have the same effect because it is such a small film to begin with it's not small it's contained that's actually it's something a- people don't talk about very much which is because we all obviously i'm old school we love movie theaters but i think you're right horror is a funny medium where there are those horror movies that actually do work maybe better one-on-one not necessarily mm-hmm. on the computer, but like you and your tv because you're all alone you yep. don't have a group of people sitting there whereas invisible man and movies that have big jumps are so fun or or the um freaky you know perfect group film but you're right i do think there's a, a more serious uh more uh slow creeper uh kind of film that really does suit watching alone which is yeah i haven't heard people talk about much and I do have to say, like, there's been certain movies during this pandemic where I've been grateful for the format I'm watching them in. Like, watching Host on my computer screen yeah. was a blessing. Like, I yeah. loved that. No, Host had, is just 
incredible in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it worked so much better in that capacity. There's been a couple like that, but then there's been other ones like Monstrum, um, which was this giant, I can't even, uh, Asian, I, I don't want to miss just his shutter. It's just it was his, on. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, shutter. it's, it's on shutter. It's massive. It's got these giant, like epic war sequences and a massive cast and, and giant creatures. That's one that I spent the whole time going, man, I wish I could have seen this on a screen. Um, yeah. well, the last, one of the, that wouldn't what? I was going to say that that's one that I'm not even sure would have done like a theatrical screening. Like you and I probably would have driven to like Chinatown to see it um, as we do with a lot of kind of the international stuff that comes out. But yeah, that's one that I, I really wanted to see um, on a, on a bigger screen. All that matters is that we got to see underwater on a big screen, the way nature intended, still one of the best experiences Hell, yes. of the year. That's still, still going to be in my top 10. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, in terms of movie experience, it's my number one, like see in theaters experience yeah. because it was the last time I had a like total blast at a movie, you know, <laughs> I remember there was a moment where I literally cheered out loud and everybody looked at me. You three looked at yeah. me and I was like, what is good. But yeah, there was the oh, moment. It was, it was, it was, a nice it was when the creature came on. I was like, Yes, and there it was. And it seems like people are really catching up to it on video too. So it's it's cool when a movie like over delivers in that way. Whereas I think we all would have gone into something like that expecting something a little less than what we were hoping mm-hmm. for. Uh, but we'll get into that when we do our top ten at the end of the year um, or whatever yeah. that looks like. That's um, gonna be coming up soon, like two more episodes, and we're uh, in the top ten territory. That's that's why Dude, I'm like cramming all these new. Ones. I have so much I have to watch. Um, but let's touch on a couple of more titles. So I want to talk about books of blood. Oh, yeah. Because um, this is one that came to Hulu a couple of weeks ago, and I watched it, and I had to ruminate on it for a bit. And then I had the pleasure of hosting um, an online screening at USC with it and talking to um, Brennan Braga, who was uh, the director and the writer of it. He co-wrote it with Adam Simon, who we've had on um, past shows. I think he was on Killer POV because um, he wrote and was the showrunner on Salem. Yeah. And so he co-wrote it, and then, um, yeah – when I watched it, now knowing that I am a huge fan of the Books of Blood and I have read all six volumes multiple times, and there are so many stories in those Books of Blood that I look and I say, oh, this would make a perfect one. I want to see Sex, Death, and Starshine. I want you to do Last Will and Testament. Um, there are so many stories in there that I look at, and if somebody was like, let's make an anthology film, I was like, why wasn't this in here? And when I first saw it, I was put off by the fact that the only story that they seem to use from the entire Books of Blood six volume set is the Books of Blood story of how the Books of Blood came to be. And even that is real loose. Until I talked to the director, Brennan Braga, and he explained how they met repeatedly with Clive Barker. And Clive was like, I've written these stories. I don't want to put these in let's put in brand new stories. And so all of the stories that went into it are all Clive Barker original. It's like all new content. Him coming up with the concepts, him coming up with the ideas. And there is some fucked up stuff in there. But I've heard from so many people have told me, I haven't seen it because of what people have said. They all say, "Eh, there's nothing Clive-ish about it all and just don't feel like it. And so once I started talking to Brennan, I think that there is more Clive in there than I was getting it credit for. Mm. Um, So, and this isn't like a spoiler or anything, but there is um, the way that the books of blood are created is um, there's this guy 
and uh, without getting into the the muck and the mire on it, but ends up that his skin becomes a palette for ghosts to ride upon and they etch stuff in his skin. Um, and they're telling their stories through his skin and it's excruciating, but he comes like otherworldly sage because of it. And throughout the course of the movie, the entire neighborhood he is in starts getting decimated. Like it keeps getting destroyed. And I wasn't perceiving that as anything. I was like, what? So like the neighborhood's getting run down, like people are moving out. And then listening to Brandon, he's talking about how, no, like the the neighborhood is becoming otherworldly. The ghosts are decimating it. Like it's becoming a hellish landscape. And then I was suddenly like, okay, I'm seeing Clive Barker in there now. And so it didn't read as Clive Barker to me, a lot of it because it's so contemporary. Like everybody has cell phones and technology plays into it. And there's a lot in it that's really, really contemporary. After talking with Brandon, I did start to feel Clive's presence in some of the stories. That said, this does not feel like Hellraiser. There is nothing really cosmic in it, um, except for the actual books of blood wrap around. The stories that you're seeing themselves are not... It's not cosmic-y. There's no politics. Like when I think Clive Barker stuff, I always think there's political factions going on like we see with Hellraiser um, or like Lords of Illusion and, you know, a lot of his other stuff. Cabal, Magica. these are all about these kind of otherworldly things where politics become a play. None of that is in this. It's just kind of spooky short stories that are pretty contained to say it. Like, Does it work as contained. a movie though, as overall? I definitely enjoyed it more after I thought about it. After I finished it, I had this knee jerk, like that wasn't Clive Barker. I don't know what that was. It was not Clive Barker. If I had gone into this thinking Clive Barker was not in any way involved, like if this did not have attachment to books of blood whatsoever, I would have said that story is kind of cool. Like there were some cool stories in there. Um, but it was me going in expecting to see books of blood. And that's where I got disappointed. Um, so go in knowing you are not going to see any of the books of blood original stories. They make little winks at a couple of them. Um, but go in knowing that it's something completely original and is still from the brain of Clive. It feels much more contained than a rid- lot of his stuff. And it does not feel as otherworldly. Like he has contained stories in the books of blood, like down Satan is super contained. It's two people, one house, but this stuff does not feel as cosmic heaven and hell. You know, it's, it's earthly stuff happening. Um, all right. All right. That's so on Hulu. That is on Hulu. So yeah. Um, so I, I say, I, I say enjoy, go in. Um, but I do give the caveat of do not expect massive Clive Barker cosmic horror. It blows up a little bit at the end, but it's still, it's, it's not Lords of Illusion or a Magica or Thief of Always or anything like that. It's a different Clive Barker. Okay. I'll try to divorce myself from it if I get to it this year. Uh, I'm going to see your Hulu, raise your Hulu. Um, I, if we're fans of Pat Healy, <laughs> Uh, if you've been waiting to see Pat Healy with a mustache playing a postman in one scene, I have the movie <laughs> for you. Uh, he is a cameo in the very fine uh, little thriller called Run, uh, which I'm very excited about you watching in particular. This is the director Anish uh, Chagnati. Chagnati. Everybody keeps telling me this is going to be in my top 10. Well, I think you're going to like it because it feels like he directed Searching um, last year. This which is- I loved. He's a USC grad. Yeah, this feels like a um, Lifetime movie done by a 24. So it has that, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's, and I, I'm not going to, I'm actually going to not spend very long on this one at all, 
Um, it's Sarah Paulson in a very good role. Um, I actually think the young girl, her daughter in this, Kira Allen, steals the movie from me. Everyone's talking about Paulson um, just because she has the showier role. But it's about a girl uh, who was born premature, her mother um, very distraught over this. It cuts to her as a teenager. She, uh, Her legs are immobile. She has a lot of health issues. And she's uh, homeschooled. And it gets to a place. It's really, it's almost impossible to say much. I went in completely blind. I'll just say that it's a dark movie that on the surface you wouldn't think is a dark movie. You'd, you'd pass the scrolling and go, okay, that what is that? I don't want to see that Lifetime movie or whatever it is. It, it gets pretty wild. She's saying about Lifetime movies, Kane. Uh, some of them get are wild. I know. I know they get wild now, but they didn't used to when I was a kid. Um, anyway, it's very tense. It's actually, I'd say in the middle 40 minutes of this, probably the most tense movie, maybe next to the one we talked about the other day. Um, what is the one with the girl surviving the night? Um I don't running away from the guy and the darkness. And we're just talking about a couple weeks ago. Uh, I don't. Oh God. I can't remember. I'm sick. I apologize. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorites of the year, but anyway, uh, but yeah, so it's, this one really moves in the middle, uh, but I don't want to say anything more uh, because it will totally give it away and you shouldn't read anything about it. And then there's, I I got four four others, but I'll just talk one other because I'm just doing real brief on these two. Uh, Blood Vessel is a shutter film um, directed by Justin Dix. This one's Mm -hmm. interesting. It's a little bit more like the devil, rock or something um it's got the one of the actors the uh, young guys from wolf creek in it it's about a bunch of people who survive on a lifeboat uh after world you know during world war ii they're uh, a mixture of people an australian a british person you know uh they drift along like they might not survive and then suddenly they see this giant german vessel um they pull up they get into it they start looking around they realize it's abandoned like death ship and movies like that and then they discover at a certain point an ancient vampire on board. Really cool old school oh, wow. Nosferatu type, but like really kind of mixture between a rat thing and a vampire. Um, and he's but he's treated like a classic vampire, um, you know, like an ancient one. And it's really surprisingly fun when it's going for the horror sequences. And then mm-hmm. some of the World War Two stuff, it's kind of like Pale Door, where it's a big swing that because of the budget probably is a little underwhelming at times i think and it's a big cast but the actual vampire stuff i think is really cool and there's moments of this where i thought it was actually a lot of fun um and this one is on shutter blood vessel fantastic um so i'm gonna talk about a book so this next one i read um while i was waiting for my covid test um four freaking hours um it's not that long i read it and a lot of stuff during that time and this is Through the Woods. This is a graphic novel by Emily Carroll, who apparently I am really late to the scene on this one. Because when I I posted about it, it looked awesome. I was like, what is it? Everybody immediately was like, oh my God, I love this book. This is amazing. How have you not read this yet? So though it's recent, apparently I'm really late to the Emily Carroll Through the Woods party. Hmm. Um, But I would best describe this it's fairy tales. Um, it's original fairy tales, but they are all completely fucked up. And um, and it's this graphic style. It's very Junji Ito. And most of the stories have body horror elements. So I described it on my Twitter as like Junji Ito for like 12-year-old girls. Mm. Um, it's really messed up. It's beautiful. Her writing is brisk, but super scary. Um, it's got these amazing endings. Some of them, it leaves these like 
questionable endings where people were still arguing um, about it online. Like there's one, um, his face was red and the ending is kind of ambiguous um, where people were like, what on earth does it mean? And then I started Googling, like, what does it mean? Um, And there's all these discussions about it online. I loved this so much. It was honestly my best read of of the year so far. Oh, cool. and, and the pictures yeah. looked awesome. I want I want to check it out. So good. Like last year the one that I kept talking about was um my favorite thing is monsters. Yeah, you gave um, it to me for your birthday. Yeah, which you have not read yet. I gave you that for your birthday maybe, last maybe year. Maybe I'll be I'll read it before Christmas show. You won't be able to read it before Christmas. It's what? dense. Really? It's dense. It's yeah. a comic book, Becca. It's dense. It's thick. Says There's it. a lot to it. You have a PhD and you're calling it a thick text. I don't know. We'll no, no. I'm saying uh, my favorite thing is Monsters took me a while to read. Okay. It is not like Through the Woods, I sat down and I read in one two-hour setting and could not put it down. And it was captivating and riveting. And I was just completely enthralled the entire time while sitting in my car. Um, whereas my favorite thing is Monsters, it's dense. It's heavy. Like the material is real heavy. Um, you would not read that all in one sitting by any stretch, but it's amazing. So you better read my favorite thing. Yeah, I actually just pulled it out like two days ago and put it back on the top of my thing. So it's great. Um, so yeah, and then the other book that I read this week, um, or I actually started this one last week, is Experimental Film um, by Gemma Files is her name. She's a Canadian um, film historian, critic, and professor. And the book is about a Canadian film historian, critic, and professor. Um, and in it, so I'm sure she was writing from um, source knowledge, in it, the woman, um, our protagonist, stumbles on film footage where another filmmaker is kind of trying to play it off as his own. And she's watching it and she's going, this shit's from like the 19 teens. Like, there's no way you just shot this. I can see that you pulled this off silver nitrate and did stuff to it. And so she starts investigating and she's eventually able to get the filmmaker to confess that they found all of this silver nitrate film stock. And as she's examining it, she really quickly realizes that this was made by this really wealthy, arty woman who was really weird. Um, And this is some of the first footage ever shot by a woman. Um, And it's this Canadian filmmaker. And she, she is so excited to expose it to the world and be the first to kind of bring this to light and be the historian on board for the first female Canadian filmmaker back in the 19 teens. But as she gets more involved with the footage and the story, weird stuff starts happening and she starts uncovering these crazy things. And the woman had this crazy ending where she was on a train and for some reason she had a full projector system in her car with her and she just disappeared. Like, and they never found any of her films. She just, for some reason, she was in a train car had a projector with her and she just disappeared. And so um, it's this so kind it sounds of sounds like it's part story. of that, uh, like Flickr, that that book Flickr was one that I know Aronofsky yeah. tried to make at one point or it there, feels there's like, a history of those kind of films. Yeah. Like there's like a cigarette burns quality yeah. to it. It's better than cigarette burns, but it's that kind of like, you know, the haunted film, the film that mm-hmm. has been hidden for a reason. Um, and this was just awesome. It gives an amazing history of experimental film as it goes along. Um, talking about experimental filmmakers. There's a whole bunch of Maya Darren in there yeah. um, as being one of the first females that they have on record. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, really fun stuff in there. And it was just, um, this was not a quick read, um, but I listened to a lot of this while I was like cooking and stuff like that. And it was a fantastic book to listen to. I had a blast with it. Yeah, yeah that so one sounds really like that. recommend this one. 
Um, I had one film that was actually one of the most fun films I've seen this year, and I it, it is definitely horror, but I don't know. It's the kind of movie where you watch and go, I don't know if this will make my horror list or just my normal list. Sometimes they separate the, them, you know, with movies, but that's Bad Hair. And if oh, you yeah. told me a film about haunted hair, I had zero interest in seeing. I've heard I, so much good stuff about this one. Yeah, I wasn't even going to watch it, but then when I there's a couple people who I do <laughs> follow on things like Letterbox, and they really were raving about it. So I did. I took the risk. Um, it's directed by Justin Simeon, who made Dear White People. Um, and this movie I thought was really funny and really. What's cool about it is when it leans into the horror sequences, it goes. I think what I was resistant to was the idea that it was going to be some comedy that had ooh haunted hair, but when it goes hard. Every time it goes hard, it actually treats it completely straight, goes mm-hmm. way over the top. And it actually reminds me of things like um, either Japanese horror of the 90s, but then a couple of moments even remind me of Hasu because it's kind of mm-hmm. wild. Like they'll do some wild moments. And it's basically this young um, African-American woman who's trying to break into Well, she works for like kind of a, a, a an MTV type channel in the 80s. It's, mm-hmm. set, it's set in 89. The, the period's fun. It looks like it's almost shot on um, Super 16 or something. It definitely reminded me in tone of Sorry to Bother You in some places, just in terms mm. of the world. And that okay. is one of my favorites of that year. So I had a lot of fun. And she's trying to move up the kind of corporate ladder, uh, but she finds herself kind of stuck. And at a certain point, you start to see that all the most um, the people who are doing best career wise are the ones who are kind of like have straighter, longer, lush hair. Uh, versus like she has a shorter more like it's more like a shorter afro is her hair and Mm -hmm. so which is you know fine for her but then she starts to see there's this corporate thing and they don't really say it's because of white culture and you know the crossover there but i'm sure that's part of what it is about i'm trying to kind of assimilate in a sense and so at a certain point she gets convinced by her boss who uh which is um played by Vanessa Williams to get a weave, go to this place where you can get a weave where they'll actually like, you know, they kind of actually sew it into your scalp. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's pretty already. It's kind of disturbing when you get to that. But when you start to realize that this hair, the hair, this place gets it from is uh, somewhere in the South, which is connected to these kind of ancestral um, <clears throat> kind of ghost ghost slash stories about the past kind of uh, it starts to have a mind of its own and do these terrible things. And it's, really pretty pretty damn cool i gotta say this is probably maybe one of the best surprises of any movie this year where i was not expecting much and i ended up laughing and being kind of weirded out and just had a good time i highly recommend this one um bad hair. okay i'm adding this one to my list for the and year. you got james vander you got dawson playing you know uh lame white boss who who, who doesn't want to see him because it's an all-black network that that's important to tell to say it's basically a black net culture and music network like MTV, but James Vanderbeek, of course, comes in as the boss of the network. And you're like, ugh. Like, so, but so it's, I think it does play with a lot of the things we didn't like about Antebellum. I think this movie gets completely uh, right and is, is kind of playful in that way. Um, and then the other one, kind of totally different tone. I saw a movie called Zombie Child, uh, but it's zombie with an I, not an E at the end. And this is one I'd heard about um, at the festival circuit last year. And it's Bertrand Benello. So he's more of like an art house foreign filmmaker. Um, and it is a French foreign film. Uh, it mm-hmm. actually popped up on Criterion now. That's how I got to see it. But it's still playing in those virtual cinemas across America where you can like, you know, some of our movie theaters that we used to go to are playing certain movies that you can pay a few bucks for. Yeah. Um, but but this is interesting. It, it connects pretty well to our main topic that we're going to be getting into because it kind of directly, obviously, kind of talks to uh Luton's I will go the zombie a bit but it's mm-hmm. it opens in Haiti in 62 and this and it goes through the process of how people really were turned into zombies so you see a man walking down the street then you see this guy 
out to get them, basically making this concoction from a blowfish, taking different poisons from different things, mixing it up. Then they clearly, yeah, they clearly give it to this guy and he appears to have dropped dead. He obviously uh, then is uh, dug out of his grave late at night by a group of people who then take him to a plantation with a bunch of other people in the same thing. And there are these kind of half, half alive, half dead uh, people are then working on this plantation in Haiti. Then it cuts to 55 years later and it's the granddaughter of that uh, zombie uh, is mm-hmm. in a French prep school now. So she heard her mother was a diplomat or saying she moved, moves to France and she's in this kind of elitist school, very high end. And it's about her just making friends there. And it basically starts to, it's like a slow burn where it starts to kind of talk about her behavior. It's almost like she's slowly being somewhat taken over maybe by, by that. That's just one angle of it. It doesn't go mm-hmm. all the way with the possession. There's this other little French girl who's been burned by a boy and wants to get revenge. So she goes to the woman's, to the girl's um, auntie, who is a, I don't know what, Mambo? Is that what they call it? Um, and she is, she basically channels uh, a spirit. And this is the part that will interest you. Because I don't think this is necessarily your bad. Like, I think you'd find this maybe a little too slow because it's definitely, definitely only kind of touches on horror, horror a little bit. But I think this part connection you would love. At the end, towards the end, she channels the spirit. And the way he was dressed was, I was like, oh, that's interesting. He looks like familiar to me. He is the exact same demon that they conjure in Sugar Hill. And oh, his name is wow. Baron, Baron Samidi. And he looks the same. He's designed to look exactly the same. And I looked which, it up afterwards, and he looks exactly like the Sugar Hill one. Same name which and everything. I swear they also use the same demon in uh, the Frog and the Princess from Disney. Yeah, the Princess um, and the Frog. Yeah, the, princess yeah, the Shadow Man. I swear he he's the like same it, yeah. demon um, as. No, so as I'm sure it's based on lore. Hill. But it, I was really interested to see this like art house foreign movie clearly channeling um, mm-hmm. and talking to Sugar Hill of all movies, which is a, a really cool kind of edgy exploitation movie. So it's got some really if you're interested in kind of just that the the Haitian kind of culture, I think is pretty interesting. And it kind of juxtaposes between that and the and the French. Mod- Obviously, it's probably saying something a little above my pay grade about French colonialization and stuff, you know, about modern, how, how France has built itself on certain, just like mm-hmm. England has. But some of that for me was a little lost because I haven't studied the, the history of it enough. But but it is an interesting movie. And um, so if somebody's looking for something a little more on the highbrow, but it, I thought it was kind of a nice connection because we're going to be kind of going into a, a noirish place uh, with the past very soon. Yeah. <laughs> So we are now going to dive into our topic for this week, which is noir horrors. Noir um, noir, like the great documentary. <laughs> That's this a totally is different noir thing. horrors, yeah. which have changed shape over the years. Um, but we decided to do this one because we were thinking Black Friday. And then we were thinking, like, what are some, you know, darker horror films? We were talking about covering Black Sunday. And then we were finally like, let's do noir horrors. Um, and so it's a place where we cross over some of our interests, like we've both we got, do. There's a couple of these titles when we get to it. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the origins and then just list you a bunch of titles that you might want to explore. But I have some that you didn't really put like. on your list. Well, that, this list isn't meant to be complete. It's not inclusive. It's not full. Um, but yeah, so this is something that definitely I think we both cross over on because we both love film noir as kind of just a general subgenre. Um, and so anytime it it gets put into horror, it excites me. I wish it was done more often, especially as we were kind of looking over the list of films to discuss. 
like the contemporary ones, there's so few. Um, where I am seeing a lot of contemporary noir right now, horror noir, is in um, graphic novels, which I'll talk about. Yeah. But yeah, like the recent stuff, it's it's just not there. Um, we were seeing a little bit of it in the 90s. So I am hungry for somebody to write another noir horror film. Yeah, and some are very overt with the tropes of noir, and some are more about the, the, the design of the film. Um, in terms of the design, you're like, Something people don't talk about enough is that American film noir, what we consider it really comes in a sense from horror anyway, because it's coming from German expressionism. Yep. And a lot of the horror movies we consider, you know, from that period, like Caligari uh, and a lot of the other Lang stuff. But so what happened is after the war, you get a lot of the Germans, actually, the, the, the cinematographers, the directors all fleeing to America. So they continue to work and suddenly the style kind of finds its way in a very American genre because it's built on gangsters. Our, yeah, gangsters and crime films and the paranoia of the war. I mean, I was recently showing uh, students out of the past, which, you know, again, German cinematographer, same cinematographer mm-hmm. for most of these films. Um, and uh, what it's it's fascinating when they look at a femme fatale and realize, like, you know, where does that come from? And I'm like, a lot of it comes from male anxiety about being at war, worrying about what their wives and girlfriends were doing. Suddenly they're demonizing the woman and she becomes this kind of villainous character. Mm-hmm. And so they're the complete opposite of what we would think of as a final girl. So they're, they're very different, but these roots are fascinating where it comes from. And some of these movies, like the key period, obviously, you know, if you're, if you're new to noir, we're talking about like uh, high contrast, so the contrast between black and white is very high, low key lighting. These are kind of uh, off camera, off angle, you know, off kind of Dutch angles sometimes, um, much more stylized filmmaking. Yeah. And they do have certain tropes that have developed over time. Like when we think like the femme fatale, the female that shows up, she seems dangerous. Um, they're usually about a detective, a gangster, some type of criminal activity. There's a female who shows up claiming to be a damsel in distress, but she feels dangerous from the get go. Um, and going from there, these do a lot of times focus on detectives. Like I think that two of kind of the most classic noir films are touch of evil and Maltese Falcon. Um, both of which really, you know, focus on the detective side of things, that there's crime going on, but there's this kind of altruistic man who's trying to fix the problem and is being tempted by the crime and the females and all that. Well, types the detectives stuff. tend to be, the other thing you get, the other post-war influences, they tend to be broken characters, characters mm-hmm. with a lot of pain or injury that's like often like the first kind of crippled or, you know, characters with like major injuries. You, get, you just get a lot more of that because because it's coming right, you know, right after, right around the same time as the war. Um, so it's it's a really interesting thing. And then I think the production code is something that we were talking about on our, you know, a couple episodes ago, but the production code also meant that a lot of these movies, especially like the ones that were going to some under RKO made by Val Luden exist because you couldn't show much. So yep. by having a film that's a lot of it's taking place in darkness, uh, you're able to kind of imply a lot of things. And when the production code breaks down, that's really when these stop that this yeah. kind of horror noir thing basically comes to a halt um and for another 20 30 years until kind of neo-noir kind of kicks off so we'll talk about some of those too um so it is interesting to see how how where this kind of came from but i'd say luden's probably the first mainstream influence in america uh, with the big yeah he's making yeah, Val Luton um, definitely was the first one to kind of weave the two together. And we see elements of horror noir before that. Like I Walked with a Zombie has some noir elements where it kind of has the femme fatale and things like that. But Val Luton's um, Cat People is the first one that's like, oh, okay, that's overt. Um, and in that we've got, 
you know, the, the immigrant who comes in is kind of seducing people. There's, it's, it's all about sex, but none of it is about sex. Everything is very stylized, very shadowy. The camera is permanently canted the entire time, which again is German expressionism. But in this case, it's being used to kind of be off-putting um, in, in a mysterious way. And this one is, it's all about kind of her homeland's fables and stories of these cat people, um, but it's woven together more like a crime drama. Yeah, and it's and it's one of the few that p- poses the femme fatale character also at kind of the, as also the lead in a way. So mm-hmm. we empathize with her even when she's changing. But it, again, some of these things, the, the actual things going on are really interesting because it's really about a fear of sex, fear of immigrants. There's all these interesting things that are subject. And this one's one of my all-time favorite directors, period. He's going to come up a couple of times, uh, who yeah. also did I Walk With the Zombie, Jacques Tenier, mm-hmm. uh, who was a French director. And he, I think, is largely responsible for what we see because I've, I've heard him talk about movies where he was just really scared of the dark. And he says, there's nothing scarier than just darkness, blackness. And he, he couldn't even go down the hallway in a dark hallway. And there's a scene in, in um, I think it's uh, one of the upcoming titles where a character just walks down the hallway and has to walk back and tell the other person. And it's kind of scary because it just yeah. keeps going. So it's interesting to see that. Um, the next one we had on the list, shadow of doubt. Yeah, this is Hitchcock. Um, and Hitchcock definitely played in this space a lot, kind of blending. Yeah, earlier too. Yeah. Yeah, blending elements of horror and, you know, kind of the detective. He has 39 steps. Is that the right number of steps? But 39, um, right. yeah, yeah 39. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it's yeah. got something steps, 30 some steps. Yeah, you've got um, spy movies. I mean, this is actually becoming one of my favorite all time movies, even of his. And I think this is his favorite movie. But this one is, uh, for those who don't know, I, I did a really sneaky double feature once at school. I showed this to my students. And then the next week, I showed them Stoker. And I said, did it remind you of anything? And it took them a beat. And they were like, oh my God, Stoker is almost a beat for beat remake it is of, of this movie which is because it's both about uncle charlie coming to stay with his beloved uh, young niece but then she finds out that he's actually the merry widow killer who's been knocking off these widows and he, and it's a joseph cotton performance that's just really creepy and i once read something about this saying that if you watch it thinking he's a vampire it changes how you watch the movie and it oh shit and it's really interesting if you watch it there's a scene where he's on a bed and it's like he's in a coffin kind of like um uh, neither hunter kind of lighting expressionistic mm-hmm. lighting and it really makes you go interesting like so i wonder if that played in hitchcock's thinking but this one's a fantastic one and again it uses it uses that small town being juxtaposed with danger entering small town you can definitely see a influence on something like um blue velvet yeah. too um the next one i know is a fave of both elric and myself like i've showed this in classes before um and you came and watched it when i showed it in the class before and this is the seventh victim um director mark robson but this is produced again by val luton um and this one's from 1943 this one does not feel like a lot of the other films that we see come out during this time period purely tonally because it's about satanists and that is not something that we see pop up in a lot of 1940s movies and Um, depression and suicide and depression yeah very dark kind of underlying um probably almost the first kind of goth like the the she really becomes uh the gene brooks is her name she becomes like this kind of icon i mean she looks you look at a black and white photo of her in this movie and you could tell me it's from new york right now yep and she's a model yeah So it is, um, she plays this woman living in New York City in Greenwich Village, and she is depressed and suicidal. And so she, she's kind of reaching out for help and she falls into a group of Satanists. Um, and when she tries to lead the group, they say, if you try to leave, we're going to kill you. And so then we don't see that story. Initially, we see her sister trying to find her 
Yeah. So again, it's the detective character. In this case, it's a young girl. Yeah, she's hired. Well, she hires the detective as well. She hires um, a detective. And so it's then the sister and the detective trying to find this very kind of um, dangerous, gothy girl who has gone underground to escape the Satanist, but she's suffering from depression. So she's highly suicidal. And yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in this movie that you just don't see in other 1940s movies. And clear, like it's clear that the way the Satanists are portrayed in this film is uh, definitely an influence on Rosemary's baby, because it's this idea of nonviolent, yep. like, like seemingly nice, funny, intelligent, intellectual Satanists who meet in basements in Greenwich Village, which is very similar to where we end up with Rosemary's Baby. So I think these two would make a great double feature, actually. Yeah, they're very social. They're kind of, um, they're classy Satanists. Like yeah. they, they definitely have like a very kind of like, no, no, we just live next door on the Upper East Side yeah. um, type Satanists. So yeah. Um, next up is another one of my faves. I've definitely shown this in classes before. And that's The Spiral Staircase from 1946. This one is a straight serial killer movie um, with a lot of flair and style to it. The lighting is, is I mean, this is Robert Sidmark who did come from that German group who moved over here. And it's just so expressive. It's, it's got a lot of expressionism. Uh, some of the light, there's a, there's a reveal. I saw this one in college and it blew me away. There's a reveal where she sees somebody through like a crack of darkness and it's just a lit eyeball, a close up mm-hmm. on the guys. And it's freak. It's still freaky. Like, it's still freaky. You know, yeah. It's really great. It's a it's really still cool. A great shot. She's a mute, a mute woman alone in a home. And she gets word that there is a serial killer who is out there somewhere. And then basically there's a thunderstorm and then it's just pure, you know, the person's in the house with you somehow. And what do you, what's going to happen kind of movie. It's very simple, but very effective. Um, I once met Lamberto Bava at a festival and I went around asking a bunch of people what the first film that scared them was. And this was his one. So it always stuck with me that he said, oh, spiral. And he held up his arms when she does the cross. Uh, oh, and yeah. he's like, oh, that's scared. He's like, that scared the shit out of me. Uh, so I always think that's kind of kind of fun to know what people's origins uh, in horror are in terms of what scared them. Oh, my them. gosh, yeah. Um, so moving on, we jump to 1957. So right here, you can see that they are getting less frequent as the Hayes Code starts kind of falling apart a little bit more. Um, And so in 1957, we have Curse of the Demon. Maybe the film we most agree on, on the planet. Yes, always, always. (laughs) We we both love this one. I think you having a t-shirt. this movie. I do have the t-shirt, yeah. Um, So this one, it's lacking some of the main tropes of uh, the traditional ones, the traditional uh, noir horrors, but what this dev have is the mystery. It's got an American professor who goes to London um, and suddenly he's investigating devil worshippers um, and things that they have going on. And so he's, he's witnesses a murder in Rome and then he's suddenly caught up in this kind of crime trying to figure out what's going on. Um, this one has a lot of fun stuff to it. Um, it, it. It still is shot like a noir. It's got the trappings of a noir because it is a detective in it, but it definitely does not have kind of the same very formulaic feel that we see in a lot of the 1940s ones. This one feels updated. Yeah, and I think this one, we're also the, the casting of Dane Andrews as the lead who's investigating. He's he's from the original Laura. He, you know, so he's perfect. And this is him towards kind of later in his career. He's the perfect person to pull you in. But the devil worshiper Carswell, I feel like this movie... When I really thought when I was putting some of these on this list, the later films that we're going to talk about, the more neonars, I -hmm. feel their debt to this one more than any of the ones we're talking about because they tend to end up with magic, uh, mystery, devil worship and these kind of. uh, But uh, something funny because you recently uh, bought the 
the BFI ghost stories. Um, yes, thing. which what? I am going to start next for Christmas. Weekend. Yes, we're going to watch because yep. I'll watch a couple more because that's my favorite discovery of the year. Bar none has been watching some of those. Um, but I only just found this out that actually the author of the majority of those that they're based on is Mr. James. This is also based on one of the stories, Casting the Ruins. Oh so, wow! So now I understand why I love this so much. It has has his uh, finger on it, so I need to start reading some original Mr. James stuff. Um, because, uh, that's the other thing about this. And my favorite part of the story is the, the little, what would you call it? It's the little piece of paper that has the, the writing Runes. on it that basically ca- that curses you as soon as you, and you have to give it to somebody else. They have to accept it to pass. Oh the yeah. They're not that's, runes, yeah, yeah. but yeah, they definitely have yeah. something like that. There's runes on it. Maybe I, I can't remember yeah. what the, I haven't seen it for a couple of years, but it, it's such, yeah, such a great movie. If you haven't seen this one, there was, there was a big deal at the time about whether they should show the monster or not. I, the director didn't want to show the monster. The monster's demon, great. But now you watch it and you're like, no, it's totally baller. That monster. Yeah. I love that monster. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Um, so the next one, I love this. I love teaching this film historically because not only is it part of horror noir and kind of supporting the tradition that's come before it, this is what we consider to be the first yellow film. Um, so in this, it is because of noir horror that we get giallo and it's because of giallo that we get slashers. And so everything is all kind of moving together. You see this really kind of cross continental interpolation of it moving from Germany to America, back to Italy, and then coming back to America. And actually, with the um, you know, one I didn't know much about is because um, you just said from Germany to back to Italy. It actually goes to back to Germany before we get to some of these. With what, what I've only just seen one or two of them called the German Krimi films, which are Ooh. a few years before you get Giallo. You get these German, which are just basically black and white crime films. But when I watched one this year for the first time, I might have seen ones without knowing I was watching one. I was like, wait, this is a giallo. And then you read up and go, oh, there's this writer, Edgar Wallace, who was kind of writing what we would think of as giallo, but it's black and white and it looks much more like noir. So this one, I can see the the debt to that in this one. And then I think when, what the Italians then do is they, by bringing color and modern fashion, they yep. took it in their own direction after this, right? And so- This is 1963's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, directed by Mario Bava, a.k.a. also known as The Evil Eye. And this one is the one that most historians, myself included, will look at and say, okay, this is the first giallo. This is where we really start to feel it. It's our first one where we're um, kind of looking at um, J&B. It's got uh, this beautiful kind of black and white photography. So um, it's a mystery novel um, mystery novel loving American tourist witnesses murders in Rome and then finds himself completely caught up in this series of killings. And um, yeah, this one's great. Uh, it's it's a girl, tight little thriller. Who's in I can't remember the name of the actress, but there's there are some scenes in this. There's like in the middle that are the best lit I've like in anything where I remember just got, kind of stopping the frame because the black and white photography was just unbelievable the way it used mm-hmm. light uh, when she's being stalked. But it's John Saxon is the um uh the tourist and the woman is uh, i think she's italian in it but it's really it's very simple but then you it obviously kind of leads to things like deep red we we i put deep red here as a mention because clearly it's following the noir patterns but it's mm-hmm. so clearly what we now consider giallo that we that's a whole different episode right to go yeah, too far completely. down that but it is but you see the that groups. one at some time but yeah. yeah but yeah so this is kind of the origin of it yeah um is it it kind of you know coming out of this noir tradition and moving into that and that's where we so, also kind of move into neo or do you have any before we get into more neo no um and this is like we've got the girl who knew too much in 1963 and then we kind of 
jump rather abruptly to 1987. Like if we look at the late 60s into the 70s, we weren't seeing the type of restrained filmmaking that comes with noirs. Um, 1970s, it was all about being gratuitous. It was all about showing everything um, that you could and being as extreme as possible. And so that you know, and 1980s, 1980s was not a soft-spoken, you know, constrained decade. It was over-the-top fucking bonkers. And a lot of young, youthful protagonists, like kids mm-hmm. and things, whereas that is very far apart from the world-beaten uh, detective character or something, right? And so we don't see another really strong horror noir crossover until 1987 with Angel Heart, which is is by far like in my top 20 movies yeah. ever made. Um, This one is Alan Parker. This is a private investigator who is hired by um, Lewis Cipher, um, who is being paid to track down this missing musician named Johnny Favorite. Um, and it starts in New York City and it travels all over New York and then eventually it travels to um, New Orleans. And it has got so much style to it, so many great characters, and it just really follows him all the way. And this is one of those twists that when I first saw this movie, I was in high school watching this, I did not see the twist at the end coming, and my mind was fucking About as good as twists get when the first time, and and even as you watch it, I watched it again, it was one of the only ones of these, I was able to watch for this and it's just one of my favorite movies. It's such a good movie all around. It doesn't matter how many times you see it, you'll see new things. Uh, it's one of the best Mickey Rourke performances, which is saying something. He's fantastic in this. It's still beautiful. This is about mm-hmm. before he starts to get all beat up. Uh, you get uh, uh, Robert De Niro playing the guy who hires Louis him. Pfeiffer, he's, yeah. he's got very sharp fingernails and is very mysterious. Uh, I almost think it's about eggs. Yes, I think uh, the eggs. And I love that uh, Mickey Rourke has a thing about chickens, which cracks me up yeah. all the way through this movie. He's got a real aversion. But uh, it's got voodoo, uh, devil worship, amnesia. It's got body swapping horror. It's got Lisa Bonet naked. Yes, it's got a crazy sex scene uh, between her. That got her fired from the Cosby show, by the way. Yep. Uh, probably lucky uh, in the end. But but no, this is this is really something. If you haven't done it, um, it's also just you feel the kind of not just culture of each city, but I think I think it really nails like Coney Island. The Coney it does. Island it nails the wildness of Coney Island. It, it, but yet there is this beautiful jazz score infused through the entire thing that somehow feels both New York, Coney Island. It feels New Orleans, like the jazz score, which is very sacred noir. Um, it, it feels so just infused and brings to life all of the different environments that he visits. Yeah, it, it's such a winner, and it's a perfect like when somebody says noir horror. I think there's no better example because you have a private detective. They're hitting all the tropes. They're bringing in horror elements that couldn't be more. They're not subtle by the end. You know, it's a real horror movie in that sense, um, where some of these kind of skirt some of that commitment. So, yeah, I have to plug here. There was this video game that I played extensively, um, extensively in middle into high school called Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Father. Um, and it was the same, it was a detective. It was very noir. It was a detective in the middle of New Orleans, um, investigating voodoo murders and, and murders. And it was super noir, but it was very much like Angel Heart as a video game. Um, not the same plot and not the same twist, but man, I want like a film version of Gabriel Knight. I, that, I just played that so much. It was amazing. Um, but that's definitely dating myself. Um, but, Moving on, 1991, we have a rather lesser known little hit here called Cast a Deadly Spell. Um, this was directed by Martin Campbell. It was made- New Zealander, um, New Zealander, New Zealander. Is he? He made this the uh, Golden Eye. 
I don't know if this was made just for Showtime or if Showtime just bought it and that's made where it for lived. HBO, I think. Okay. Um, maybe it was HBO. Uh, this is one that um, I remember when my parents first got cable. I remember seeing this in repetition. It was like this and like Beastmaster were always oh, yeah. on no matter like what time of day Beastmaster. See, we, didn't, we didn't get HBO in New Zealand. So I never saw this one and, until you started talking about it was the reason I watched this one. Um, and so, and it's, and it's pure. No, I mean, this is, this is the difference. You have some movies that are, you know, have noir style and then other movies that are about noir. This is a movie this about, is about noir. noir. Yeah. yeah. This is, um, it's very Lovecraftian, but it's about, um, a detective H Philip Lovecraft, which is definitely throwing it like, yeah. you know, a couple of different references there, but H Philip Lovecraft, um, is hired by this mysterious rich man to recover a stolen book, the Necronomicon. He's investigating. Um, he finds, um, oh gosh, her name just escaped my brain. Uh, Julian um, Moore. Is Julian Moore. Moore. David Warner's the bad guy. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and at the same time, what I love about this is even though that it is this like tight little detective thriller, the world uses this device that they um, exist in this otherworldly world, otherworldly world, good job, um, where magic is bought and sold on the black market. Like you can buy spells and monsters and stuff like that on the black market. And so um, the world that he gets shoved into as he's looking for this book is, you know, all of this power being sold and purchased on the black market. And, and he, I always thought that that was a really cool way to do it. Yeah. That, that the world in this is so much fun. He, I wish this was a series because like an actual TV series, because mm-hmm. watching the world of it, it's Fred Ward as the detective from tremors. He's great as the detective, but he's the only, what, what's fun about it is he's the only one who doesn't use magic. And so that's what, why he's kind of known. And people are like, well, you don't use magic. That's crazy. You can't get by in this world without magic. And so he doesn't trust it in that sense. And so that sets him apart. But what's cool is this thing has freaking monsters and weird little gnome creatures popping up. And like, it really kind of goes to town with the visual effects uh, and kind of practical creatures, which I wasn't expecting that. That was to me the nice surprise of this movie. Um, but there is a, a sequel that's a little lesser known that came out uh, three years later, directed by Paul Schrader, that is very was been very hard to f- see for a long time, uh, called Witch Hunt. Um, Which I had always wanted to see because this is Dennis Hopper playing the detective. Yeah, role. so Dennis Hopper takes over, and uh, I did find it. It popped up only about a month ago on YouTube. It's, it's really, when I say it's hard to find, I mean it's really, really tricky to find. This one popular. was only released to VHS, and it never went anywhere past that, and it has not popped up on streaming yet. And I hate to tell you this because I know you really wanted to watch it. I did. I think there's a reason why it is much harder. It is... It it bleeds a lot of the fun of the first one out of this. Hopper is t- terribly cast; like he is the worst person to play this role. Unfortunately, even though but it's I love got Hopper. Bogosian in it, uh, Bogosian right? playing an evil senator, and that's actually kind of fun. He's an evil senator trying to make uh, Hollywood magic free. He wants there to be no magic in Hollywood, even though, of course, he's using. There's a couple moments where there's a couple effects where you're like, "Oh, that's really cool." But the problem is, it doesn't have any of the monsters that the first one has, and I don't know mm. why, why. And it just it just feels. I mean, Paul Schrader is a fantastic writer and the movies of his that I love, I really love, but he's a realist him doing anything in supernatural stuff. I'm always like, really? Um, including when he tried to do the, uh, exorcist, uh, you know, late, uh, sequel or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, I just, this to me just didn't work. It felt like very flat, but it's cool, uh, that there is a sequel to this. I wish it was still Fred Ward. And both of these do directly start to connect to what we're seeing, which is magic, you know, detective noir, all of these things that we saw back in, um, Curse of the Demon are all kind of coming through and they come into yep. our next one too. 
So the next one that we have cited is one that definitely winks more at noir than kind of, you know, engages fully in it, but it's definitely winking hard. And that is 1995's Lord of Illusion, directed by Clive Barker. Um, so this one's New York private investigator Harry Diamore stumbles into this fanatical cult who are waiting for the resurrection of their leader. Nick's. And yeah, Nick's. And um, we have this kind of charming female who enters the frame with Dorothea. And so this one definitely, it's winking hard at Noir because we do have this kind of seedy, hard-boiled detective who has his own issues investigating everything. And it's a magician like this guy, Swan, who's having these big magic shows and he, he seems like a mortal. And he's, to me, this is like one of the, the best of the mixtures of all these. When you put a blender and put mm-hmm. Noir and magic and Satanism, I think the villain in this movie is what makes it. Nix is a really scary. There's a line where he's like, I'm going to murder the world where you're like, yep. holy shit. Um, and it's just got Clive Barker's touch. So uh, I saw this one in theater. So I must've been like 17 when this came out. And I remember really digging it and being, Oh, I've never gotten over the fact that Clive didn't direct another movie after this. I know. As he's such a good filmmaker. In this my one, mind. it has so much subtext going on as yeah. well. I love this one, but definitely connects hard to some of the other ones we've been talking about. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely worth, seeing so before we get into the next one that we put on the list i'm also going to cite two that i think are definitely kind of winking as well the crow um has the same environment yeah Yeah, it's it's got um and we've got dark city which we're going to talk about in a sec but the crow definitely has these kind of neo-noir elements with it yeah um, and then the I style is all the way. I just I don't know if I see the when I watch the cry. I don't know if I'm thinking horror, but I know some people do because it's mm-hmm. a revenge, supernatural revenge story. So it probably is, you know. I think it's horror adjacent. And yeah. the other one that I'm going to say is definitely noir adjacent is Cemetery Man, um, which yeah. when I was looking it up, I had people saying, "Oh, it's a gothic noir," yeah. which is an interesting way to think about it, where it does have these fairy tale qualities come into it. But that said, it is shot and presented very much like a noir, where yeah, we have over. this guy. Yeah, in voiceover, telling his own story, investigating what's happening. We have a femme fatale enter the story. So it does still have all of these kind of trappings of a film noir without actually being set in some city with a hard-boiled investigator. Doomed characters. That's another ma- massive trope that we see running through most of these films, that the lead character is kind of doomed from the start, whatever is going to totally. happen. Um, so we did include Dark City. We'll call this one horror adjacent, but both Elric and I are fans of it, so we wanted to make sure it got it's, I mean, it's horror action. sci-fi for sure. You know, hi-fi star. I mean, it's it goes to town with the noir style. It's brilliant. Like the lighting. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, this this is pure noir. I mean, I will say Blade Runner is also pure yeah. noir. Um, this one not starts with horror. the amnesia plot, which is another mm-hmm. classic. A film noir plot so it just opens if you ever just want to see a great opening 10 minutes i always show it to classes because you kind of have to just jump in with the characters just a character opening their eyes in a bathtub naked no idea where they are come out they might they they kind of knock over a goldfish it smashes on the ground they have to save the goldfish and they reveal there's a dead one naked woman in the room they have yep. to run out of there and then these kind of creatures are coming down the hallway who look like uh the mystery man from another movie we might be talking about soon uh all pale-faced and tall and gangly uh one of them wrote the rocky horror picture show uh, yay <laughs> right. richard yeah mr ham oh. i think they call him 
Yeah. So Dark City is um, just a mix of, of horror, science fiction, and noir wrapped in this brilliant package. And this is one that I wish got more love. I wish this had achieved Blade Runner-like status because for yeah. me, it's just as good. I've always loved this. Yeah, no, it's so a much. really, really cool movie. And Rufus Sewell's the star of that one and mm-hmm. highly recommend it. And definitely the, the style leads to, uh, actually, we did those two out of order, weirdly enough, Dark City. But um, Lost Highway is yep. one of the films that, you know, changed my life. Like we all have those movies that we see at a critical time, but I saw this first year of college in the theater. Yep, me too. My, my brain just was like, this, I don't think I'll see a better, more me, mind fuck horror, noir movie. You know, it's, and, and you'll never completely solve it. Like you have your theories and you kind of get the feel for what it is, but Lynch won't ever allow you to completely read his yeah. movies. You know, and this great. is the flawed character, the doomed character, where from frame one, you feel like something bad is about to happen. Him trying to solve what's going on. We have the femme fatales entering. We have the man coming in that we know is dangerous, but seems to be trying to help him, giving him information as he goes along. Um, yeah, to be honest, I, there are scenes of this movie where I'm still like, I have no idea what's going well, on. Well, yeah, gangsters. Like, it's, it's like it's, it sets up as a pretty normal, you know, jealousy, paranoia kind of movie. Then when the guy finally does some terrible act he kind of reinvents his existence in his mind to be younger and studlier and then that character starts going on a downfall and you realize you can't control you like he's doomed no what matter which life he tries to lead it's kind of the opposite of it's a wonderful life yeah <laughs> the inverse. It is. uh but it yeah. has femme fatale out the one of the best femme fatales by patricia arquette like she kills it in this movie and there's also elements of noir that are in Mulholland Drive, of obviously. Of course, yeah, as big well. time. And Blue Velvet. Um, so, I mean, yeah, he, Blue Velvet, yeah. He's heavily influenced by the 1950s, like just as a filmmaker. He's one of those people because that's what he grew up in, you know? So, uh, but Lost Highway is one of my favorite, uh, my favorite genre is mindfuck um, cinema. And this one is one of the best. So, if you haven't yeah, seen it, I remember watching, yeah, like first year of college, I watched Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, and um, Lost Highway, probably all within the same like six month period well Mulholland and would have been a little later because that was like 2000 that would have been no Mulholland was a little i thought that I think was it's like 2000 a, you would have seen that in theaters was it? Yeah. okay yeah i remember i would have been all. college first year of college yeah um i remember seeing them all like it felt like back to back like within yeah. just my undergrad i watched all of them really close together and i remember yeah, seeing yeah. a lot of his films close to like back to back like i suddenly started seeking out his stuff and every single one of them being a weird mind fuck in that capacity um so yeah including like elephant man and yeah just getting yeah i mean again yeah we're about to get a new dune but um i would recommend people check out the old dune not because it works all that well because he was a little out of his element but man there are still have no idea what's going on in that movie i know story-wise but i'll tell you there are sequences as a stylist like the stuff with baron harkonnen there is no way a new movie is going to come close to coming to that character so he's he's you know he's still one of my he probably is my favorite filmmakers i still say i controls the spice at least like once a week (laughs) too like anytime somebody is like can you get me the tarragon i can't put it down without saying like i control the spice of course you can um of course i can um okay so that brings us to 1999 a movie that i loved at the time period but it did not get much attention at all and this is roman polanski's ninth gate yeah i mean like polanski there's no doubt about you can't even say his name without bringing up how problematic he is as a filmmaker Uh, interestingly enough though i do find that people never say that when they talk about rosemary's baby they just because rosemary's baby is is canon to people but but obviously that he is and so he was obviously making 
most of his movies outside of America because in America, yeah, this one was on entirely in France, right? Rape charges, but this is Johnny Depp, Frank Langella, and this one ties directly back to what we were just talking about, which is uh, movies like you know, Curse of the Demon. It's basically a Satanist cult movie, but you have your detective character in this case as a rare book dealer. And he digs deeper. I do think uh, if you're just talking about the art of a movie, this is a actually a really good kind of creepy, weird movie that pulls you in as a modern noir and then has some pretty awesome Frank Langella stuff towards the end where mm-hmm. he is a guy trying to commune with the devil himself. And uh, Lena Olin plays a complete femme fatale. Uh, so it's really out of that kind of it feels like if this was shot in black and white you could almost believe that it was a Val Luden story. Like it feels like a Val Luden story. Totally. And it's got some really cool sequences. Like even um, there's a sex scene at the end that I remember being like, I like how this shot. It's it's really, it's really wild. Like it's a, it's got some wild stuff. And so there's, you know, no one's ever disputed uh, Polanski's ability as a filmmaker. That's never been up for grabs. Yeah. He's definitely controversial. So we will always kind of put him on um, with that caveat that, you know, he is very controversial, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, Um, it's, but the art of that is, that's like the last, Last time I saw one in a theater, which really made that kind of an impression on me. Um, you know, I've seen things that have shades of it, and there's lots of neo noir that's not touching horror so much in the crime mm-hmm. film. But those are the ones that really, I think, um, you know, which is kind of crazy because that's 20 years ago. Yeah. So where we are seeing horror noir now um, is I've definitely seen it within the past couple of decades or decade within the the graphic novels like Dylan Dog definitely did it. Um, and I, I must confess the movie did not impress me as much, but the the graphic novel is amazing. Which is Symmetry and, Man, right? The same character as Symmetry yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely in the same world. And because of that, it does have that same kind of noirish quality to it. Um, Fatal is one I have to mention because this one, it's thick. This is like there's tomes of Fatal. It's been going on for a while. Um, but this is one that I really recommend kind of buying the big collection on. And it is straight 100% hard noir with Lovecraft with Lovecraftian bleeds. Um, really nice. I will also recommend Torso which is a graphic novel that I, I've heard so many stories about people trying to get the rights to this and make it like big filmmakers. Pincher, Pincher was fun. Yeah, Pincher Adventure was on it for a while. Um, and I've heard this floated around for so long as like a blankety blank is making it now. Um, I wish somebody would. This is such a tight little crime thriller with a lot of noir elements to it. It's dark, it's shadowed, it's grisly. Yeah, I, like I it. want to see a film version of this. In black and white. Time. I want it in black and white. Oh my God. Yeah. The last one is kind of a deep cut title, even in graphic novel world, but it's one that um, definitely has some, some noir elements to it. Um, it's also aquatic horror and this is depth H mm. and it's about an outer space explorer who is um, she, she, because she's this outer space explorer, they send her down to this place at the bottom of the ocean, um, trying to investigate her father's murder. And she gets there and it becomes a group of people locked in to this basically like this single room oceanic base um, trying to solve her father's murder. And so it's very contained. There's a lot of stuff going on. It definitely has aquatic horror stuff going on too. But um, it really is kind of like a detective mystery, like thousands of feet below the surface. Um, And it's got some really strong elements of horror noir as well. Um, And then we have a horror noir deep cut before we move on. We actually have two of them. Um, So we will give quick mentions to Dementia, 
from 1955. Um, this is not dementia 13, which it gets confused with a lot. Um, this is dementia. This is from John Parker. The film has no dialogue at all. It follows a young woman on Skid Row as she has these kind of weird psychotic experiences. She, she starts off like in an office. It feels like this like feminist... It's almost like an experimental film, but it's clearly noir, clearly has horror beats, um, where we just follow this woman from an office and then suddenly she gets empowered and then she's on the streets and somebody's killing people and we don't know who it is. And it's she's walking through Skid Row. It's really kind of wild. It's it like 60 minutes it. long. It's pretty short. Um, I think it, it is streaming on something called uh, the Cohen Media Group that you can watch on Amazon because that's how I saw it. Um, I know you had it on disc too, right? Yeah, I had it on disc. It feels like a fever dream. Yeah, like yeah totally. One. It's, it, I don't recommend it as a film, but if you do like experimental weird shit, um, this is this is a hell of a ride. For and pure time. noir. Like it's tip, it's trying to do the noir thing uh, mm-hmm. through. It's basically like watching a nightmare play out. But I do think there's a really interesting kind of feminist angle to it that I hadn't seen before in that kind Definitely. of- Definitely. And you also put one on the list that I had not seen before, JD's Revenge. All right, yeah, JD's Revenge is an interesting one. So it's part of kind of uh, black exploitation. It is a, I think it's so. So it also fits with horror noir. If you haven't seen the wonderful horror noir documentary that's on Shutter about um, African Americans in horror throughout the ages, but this one, he is a detective character, uh, and he gets. At some point, uh, he gets comes back as a ghost to solve his own murder in like kind of a jazz era. Uh, I'm not sure which city it's in now. I haven't seen it for a while, but it did make an impression. So it's a ghost story that's also a film noir. So it's kind of that intersection. Um, and it's just a story that I haven't quite seen that done before. But it's been a while since I've seen it. So, But I do think that one is streaming on Amazon. So uh, JD's Revenge. And it was fun. My, my memory was that it was actually quite a fun movie. So we're now going to shift gears as we move into our final few segments. Um, Deep Cuts for this week is not a horror noir. No, we wanted to do the other topic that we were toying with, right? Shopping. Yes, which is shopping consumers and malls. And so this is going to be our topic for um, our deep cut and our movie fight of this week is shopping and malls. And so for uh, this week's Deep Cut, we wanted to do something to kind of get you in the holiday spirit and make you think about shopping as well. And we went fucking bonkers with this movie, um, with one that I have quite a history with, and that is 1989's Elves. I will admit that I'd seen the cover many times and never watched this one. I get I always get it mixed up with... Um... Something greetings. There's a cover. It, the, there's Don't open covers. till Christmas. Yeah, that it's one similar. and something else. But man, <clears throat> this might be my new holiday classic. <laughs> like I had heard from a lot of people that was pretty shitty, actually. I'd heard somebody really didn't like this, I remember. And it put me off for many years. And I think this movie is so much fun because Dan Haggerty is playing a, uh, he's towards the end, he's hired as a uh, mall Santa. Uh, after being unemployed, he used to be, again, a detective character. He was a store detective. Uh, he, Dan Haggerty is, what was this character that you, we, I, uh, we Grizzly Adams. Grizzly Adams. Uh, I was watching this and afterwards, I think I wrote you going, I think he's the only other person who could have played Big Lebowski. It's true. He, he would have has been a charisma. Big Lebowski. He's lovable and he's got charisma and he's cool. Um, but it's he's really. He's like the slacker that you love. Yeah. yeah you got to love this guy. He's unemployed uh, mall cop. But, uh, 
but it's also these three girls, three teenagers in a kind of dark forest at the start, uh, making a blood pledge um, to be sisters and kind of worshiping some book or drawing that she has. And then she gets home and her, her grandfather, who's in a wheelchair and has a kind of German accent, slaps her and says, never go to the forest, never go to the forest. And you're like, what the hell is this movie? And then it starts to open up what we're watching. And I still am not sure that it's real. So I can't even, um, I, I don't ask me to, to kind of cohesively describe the plot, but the big thing is there are elves that were created as part of a Nazi experiment to try to somehow create the master race. I'm not sure how the elves even play into this, but they are trying to find pure Aryan blood so they can mate with it. And we I don't find even out know. that she, the main girl, is from a pure bloodline. I won't tell you exactly how, but I will say there is some bizarro insist to you kind of vibes that pop up throughout this wild which is Um, kind of crazy so yeah this movie is just fucking bonkers like there is so much going on here i mean i guess at its core it's about beating the nazis but you spend most of the movie just chasing around these very plasticky well it's just really one i think that's the other thing it's called elves and there's really just one just one elf yeah you see the whole point is that he's meant to have sex with a virgin to create the the super race, the master race, which is just bonkers because like I don't, you know, he doesn't look like much. He doesn't look like he's going to create any master race. But so nope. it's very weird. Uh, Dan Haggerty's there to help, and it has the wor- the most entertaining character in this movie. It has the worst mom I've seen in any movie. Like I kept going. She's there's one scene where she's doing the wild at heart thing with the lipstick and keep putting it on and on and on. But she is from frame one, the biggest bitch I've ever seen in a movie. Like I, I hate her. Everything she says to all the characters and they never explain why she's just so nope. cold and awful. she's given such character and oh, it does not matter. Awful. It does not have to be like that. It's not controlling the plot in any capacity, but yeah, it's still Which there. is awesome because it means you can watch it on mother's day or at Christmas. It doesn't matter. I do have to say, I mentioned this to you over text when you recommended this one. I attribute this movie for making me quit smoking. Mm. Um, so I had seen this one before, but I decided to rewatch it um, the very first year I was living in New York City. And I had already considered quitting smoking. I'd been smoking for a long time, and not a long time, like four or five years at that point. Um, I started smoking when I was in dance school in college because it keeps the weight off and all that mm. grand stuff. Um, and so I, um, had been thinking about quitting cause I lived on the fifth floor of a walk up and I wouldn't smoke in my apartment. Um, so I had to walk down five flights of stairs to have a cigarette and then back up in the middle of co- cold winter. And it reached a point where I was like, why am I even doing this? And then I remember at Christmas time, that very first year I watched elves and I'd seen it before, but Dan Haggerty smokes. continuously he does not stop there's even a point where he is carrying around a carton of camel unfiltered and it's like he never stops through the entire movie and you are waiting for him to keel over at any point like he just does not look well um and i remember watching this right as i was having those debates and i was like yeah i can quit um and i did so thank you um what Thank a story. you, Elle. I did um, not I will, expect that movie would create such a change in this world. I will. I will put it out as um, though though it may not be a cinematic masterpiece. It is definitely a bonkers one. And if you are looking to quit smoking, it's great encouragement. Yeah, and we're coming up to. Yeah, obviously, we'll touch on some more holiday films uh, in a, in another episode a little bit. But this one is definitely fun. Wild. You have evil Nazis, uh, conspiracy theories, and 
uh, and an elf and a, and a mall Santa. So, you know, what more do you want? Uh, that's elves. Okay, Elric, it is time for movie fight. But we take movies seriously. How come only one will live? Because it's movie fight. Thank you for the reminder. It's thank you, fight. thank you. That really hurt my throat tonight. I shouldn't have done that. You know, it's all that smoking. That. You know, it's gonna. Okay, it took, I got a couple of days off. I can, uh, I can get the the throat back. So we have the battle of two classic malls. These are both legendary malls. I've been to both, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. We have the Sherman Oaks Galleria, uh, which was uh, which has changed radically since then. It's more outdoorsy now. And then a huge one called the Dallas Market Center, uh, which I think I was in this because it was a giant mall that had like an ice skating rink in it when I was there years ago. Um, but we are talking about shopping mall. Shopping mall. Versus. Versus the initiation. Um, now on paper, this might look like a mismatch because one movie is a beloved classic and the other one is a hardly known slasher. But, um, in reality, I don't know if chopping mall deserves the title chopping mall, or if we should really give that to the initiation. Maybe that's part of this question is which movie deserves to be called chopping mall. Well, I think that it's which one mauled it better, which one used the mall the best, because if you're going to set a film in a mall, you better fucking use them all. Yeah, you better use them all. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, Killbots, as it was originally called, is Jim Wynowski's movie. There is no slashing to be had, which was the disappointment as a kid for me. Uh, but it's got Barbara Crampton, Paul Bartel, Mary Warnoff, Garrett Graham, and Dick Miller. I mean, those are all cult Produced icons. by Julie Corman as yes, well. Yes, and it's actually, you know, for Wynowski, this is, I think, one of his most entertaining films. I would say it is his most entertaining yeah, film. I mean, he's got some other ones yeah, that I definitely, like Transylvania Twist. I like Haunting of Morella for odd reasons. But, um, yeah, like, this is, I'd say this is definitely his most commercial. Yeah, these are, I mean, also just impressive to see these guys, killer robots. I'm not, well, they're not meant to be killers. They're basically like, like mini Robocops that are designed for mall security, but of course there's an electrical thunder lightning storm that turns them uh, all into killers and we have uh, Barbara Crampton and her friends um, who all work at the mall wanting to stay over at the mall one night to kind of make out with their boyfriends and then suddenly they are being hunted by these uh, these robots and so if this had been called Killbots I still think it would be the greatest thing ever even though Chopping Mall is probably the best title and definitely one of the best VHS covers of that period but it is not that movie it's misselling the movie um, so I will say that is something that both of these films have in common is they have hella good posters. Yes. Um, both of these just have amazing posters for different reasons. Chopping Mall, you know, it just is a really clever delivery. Um, I will say that if you look closely at the poster for my first movie, um, All the Creatures Were Stirring, you will see that I sent Devin Whitehead the Chopping Mall poster and said, can we set this at Christmas? Oh, yeah. And thus it was born. Um, so Yeah. Um, definitely one of my favorite posters of all time. But then the initiation is the poster that evolved with me where when I saw it as a kid, I never saw it. Um, I saw what it was. And then years later, you, I think were talking about it on killer POV or one of our shows. Yeah. And you were talking about it as it's clearly a guy masturbating or a woman and then I, on a penis with, yeah, with, yeah. 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 And then I remember looking it up while we were doing the show and suddenly it was like new eyes where I was like, oh God, wait, I see. I never saw because she's wearing the pink dress. It looks very fleshy. 
And then suddenly it was like a whole new way of yeah, seeing Yeah, she's it. holding so a candle. You. Yes, you're welcome. You can never unsee the cover of this one. Uh, but this one is, um, this has Vera Miles, classic actress, and Clue Gulliger, which in a, which is fun. And the uh, Daphne Zuniga from Melrose Place becomes the lead. But this one, I think the start is really cool. I really like the backstory because it's just utterly bonkers. Like it's a little girl walking in on her mom having an affair with Clue Gulliger's character and gets out a knife to try to kind of get him away, thinks, thinking he's hurting the mom. And then uh, the actual dad comes home, catches them, threatens the man, and is pushed into the fire, lights himself on fire, and seemingly burns to death. And you're like, what the hell am I watching? And then Daphne Zuniga just wakes up. Yeah, she just wakes up 20 years later or whatever in a uh, sorority hazing ritual. Yeah, and so you get this absolutely bonkers cold open, and then we shift to sorority, and we kind of forget about that scene that we saw at the beginning. We just know that Daphne has like reoccurring dreams um, that she doesn't know where she comes from, where they come from, and then she goes home and she has this seemingly normal family. Her dad happens to own a department store, um, and so it's Clue Gulliger, yes, you know, twenty years later owns the stuff, and you're like, wait a minute, I don't know if that's her dad. Yeah, so we kind of. Yeah, I, I won't say this has a grand reveal. This has a, I saw it coming from frame one reveal. Yes, um, but, but it that is said, a big kind of head turner when it finally gets there, I guess. Yes. And so um, each of the sorority pledges is kind of given a different like dare that they have to do. And hers is that her and the other pledges have to break into her dad's department store and steal. I think they have to steal like the security guard's clothes yeah, or something uniform. like that. They have to steal his uniform and come back out. Ooh, that's our pledge dare. So fine. They get there, they get locked in, and then there's a killer. And then they're locked into this department store with the killer. And and a few others who went there to kind of scare them from the sorority and some guys, you know, going there to freak them out, of course, to just to give us some more victims. So it's it's a pretty traditional slasher once it gets into it, uh, but kind of fun because Daphne Zuniga's character has obviously got uh, some form of kind of amnesia from childhood. Mm-hmm. And so you're only kind of getting some of those facts as it goes. But they, you know, they certainly use them all. They're running around store to store. There's some cool hunting gear that's used at one point by the yep. killer. And the, the elevators are really cool. The way they use like the kind of see-through elevators. Um, it's kind of at- fun for that. Yeah, this one also has a death by harpoon gun, um, which you just don't see. So props for a harpoon. But I do have to say, Chopping Mall uses the the mall as well because they use the elevator. They do the paint store. But I question because I've never seen a paint store at a mall. Like never once have I been walking through a mall and been like, oh, the Sherman Williams next to the Hickory Farms. 86 is a lot bigger. Like (laughs) painting painting yourself, painting bird boxes, that kind of stuff. It was Um, all it was all at the mall. It's all at the mall. I feel like the Um, passions of the girl. I think the cool tie in for the mall side for the chopping mall is that the girls work there. And so so there's this mall culture that comes out more because the initiations really she just, you know, her dad owns a mall. So they're running around it. So the use of the mall and chopping mall, I think, is, is really fun because they're it's part of their culture and they're staying the night and then of course you've got those totally bonkers i mean we take it for granted now because we know what chopping mall is but can you my brain going back going yeah you're gonna have these like weird robots going around for mall security are gonna kill all the people it's pretty like crazy. killing valley girls because yeah. it literally was set in sherman oaks totally so. yeah yeah so. totally yeah um so which one mauled it better I think I'm going to have to agree with you. I think Chopping Mall mauled it better. It feels much more like 80s mall culture. They're definitely using it. It feels like it's really kind of trying to play up what we viewed as the mall of the 1980s. Um, In initiation, they're there at the department store, but it's not about 
trying on clothes or celebrating any of, you know, the splendor that the mall has to offer. They get there, they get trapped pretty quickly, and then it becomes... With initiation, I feel like it's a lot more of using kind of um, the back of the store. It's like they're in hallways, they're in service entrances, things like that, trying to get back out. Yeah, I think I read that they had access to the mall from 9 p.m., to 7 a.m. every day and they had to be completely out every single night so that a mall would be operational. So, and this is all happening in Dallas in the 80s. So it's kind of wild. I bet there's some uh, stories behind this one. But but yeah, I think it's more like in this movie, they're using it as a, a, a location as part of the movie, whereas Chopping Mall it is the movie. The movie is yes. a mall from start to end. You're never really out of that space. Um, also, you, you know, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnov have a great kind of comedy scene in the middle of this film. Um, and Dick Miller gets a fun zapping. So I, I think it has just such a good cult value. But I did. I, I, I think we both knew if this was a mano a mano fight that Chopping Mall was going to probably beat the initiation. But yeah. the initiation's a fun little gem. And, and for some people, it probably would be a new discovery. Uh, yeah. So we did want to put it in there. It's a fun little slasher um, and uh, worthy of mention, I think. I also watched Hide and Go Shriek last week yeah. when I was doing the trivia round. This is one. Um, this one I don't understand because um, it's a group of kids who, for fun, decide to break into a furniture store. Yeah, I think one of them Not, maybe owns it or somebody's parent runs yeah, it or something. There's, there was some type of – I was watching it while cooking, to yeah. be honest. But um, there is a backstory to it. But yeah, where one of them is involved with it. But that said, they break into a furniture store. It does not have the whimsy of the mall movie, but um, it's not that charming, but it has a beheading done by an elevator that is actually kind of an old time. Really cool. Like a really good kill. Otherwise, it's a little flat. But so that um, is that is um, a runner up for the mall films. All right. And now, yes. And let's be real. If we had put the Dawn of the Dead movies, obviously, they'd clean up with mall culture. But the greatest, as I was saying to you, and we will be talking about some of these movies next week, but the greatest uh, mall satire or like shopping satire go to the Black Friday scene at the start of Krampus. Is, it is amazing. Genius. The first 10 minutes of that are just a whole nother level of showing Americans and mall culture. So brilliant. Did you ever do Black Friday? Was that like part of your thing? Not in my life. No. No. no okay. Never a thing yeah. For me, no. Like yeah. I never went out on Black Friday. It wouldn't even dawn on me. I was just always like, why would you go shopping? I, today? I certainly will not be today. If you're listening to this for the love of God, uh, please Don't wear go a mask out. and please do not go do things unnecessary. Shop online uh, and say, uh, we sent you. <laughs> yes yes um like we are trying to support local businesses um oh yes for we've sure. even yeah we've had conversations about how can we still support our magnolia park which we is horror row in la yeah. there's just a line of horror shops amazing ones um horror oh, well, yeah and i'm LA. not saying don't go out and shop but if you do it all on the same day obviously we're gonna have all sorts of trouble if everyone's uh clustering out there so uh stay safe um stay safer than the kids in shopping mall that's all we'll say Yes, I somehow survived COVID this week. So That's let's, good. Let's yeah, you're in good keep point. it. Keep it um, like that. So Have that, you had to do a COVID test yet? Not yet because I haven't had to go back to um, you know, studio uh working. So I'm sure the second I have to I will. Yeah, this is my third one. Um they scrape your brain. It's kind of it feels wild. Yeah. Like literally they scrape it feels like there's it's it's a very long Q tip and they basically scrape your brain. I will be taking um, the anal option. <laughs> that is no question about it i'll be like <laughs> reversing well on that note happy thanksgiving y'all yes. please um like review rate us on all of your uh on all of your podcast uh gatherers what are they called podcast catchers yeah, yeah. Uh, iTunes. Go to iTunes. We're just like review talk, rate us. You know, if you like it, tell us. Let us know so as we keep. We doing need it. to clip 
the line of David Cronenberg saying it oh, from yes, that yes, movie yes. that Let's we do it. saw. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> so please don't please. forget to rate and review. Uh, subscribe yes. and rate and review. He's got a gun. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's basically, yeah, we need that at the end. I need that um, line at the end so um, we can use that as a sound file. Um, please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please give some love to our sister show, now also on the Fangoria Network, The King Cast, um, with Eric Vespi and Scott Wampler. Um, so please definitely check out their show. And if you are, if, if we, if we mentioning thirty something movies just now was not enough titles for you, uh, you can also find our uh, spinoff uh, Patreon uh, show called Deep Cuts, which is basically kind of some overtime extra deep cut titles for those who are really into the really, obscure stuff. Yeah, really bonkers shit. We talk about the washing machine um, by Ruggiero Diodato, which is about a killer washing machine yes. by Ruggiero Diodato. Yeah. So definitely check out our Patreon deep cuts um so and which you can find on all of our socials so thank you guys so much everyone please have a wonderful and safe thanksgiving i will be figuring out how to roast a chicken um while watching a bunch of new releases so i can figure out my top 10 list for the year sounds good and thank you to our sound engineer ernie hurtado everyone should be hiring him if you're in the sound game yes of the Dark Podcast is a Fangoria podcast production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McHendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Avi Gold. Associate producer, Jessica Safa-Vamir and our amazing sound engineer Ernie Hurtado. Thank you. 